three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, I can't with some of these people. Put down um, your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, Would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. Seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. I've got an exciting episode for you this week where I'm joined by sleep expert and the founder of Sleep is a Skill, Molly McLaughlin. And we dive into a conversation all about sleep. Molly and I explore issues including all about rebound sleep and how the quality of your sleep is impacted by your sleep the night before. Why people who supposedly thrive on under seven hours of sleep are still experiencing cognitive decline even if they don't know it. Circadian rhythm entrainment and how the smartphone is responsible for the prevalence of sleep deprivation in America. Why a consistent seven-day sleep schedule is always better than catching up on the weekend. And finally, whether it's healthy to wake up with an alarm clock. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. Hey guys, I hope everyone's having a great summer. We're in mid-July. It's been a hell of a year. The thing is, usually, you know, I can record these episodes, you know, a month, two months in advance, and not be that concerned with whether or not, you know, the episode will no longer be timely, whether or not I will have missed something important by recording it a month in advance. But what's difficult about 2020 is this has been such a trying and eventful year. And there's, you know, from the pandemic to, um, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and demonstrations, man, it's been, it's been a hell of a year so far. Um, and hoping the second half, you know, that there's more positive um, happenings and, you know, better news all around. Uh, Sort of, you know, on on a positive note, I'm excited for the opportunity to dive into this conversation on sleep. I mean, you know, people who know me know that sleep is a topic that's near and dear to my heart and something I've mentioned on the pod several times, in particular back in episode 12, uh, my friend Adam Rabinowitz and I went through all the different theories of sleep and, uh, you know, delved into the research and, you know, we we're both well-educated, but we're not experts in the field. And, uh, I don't, I honestly don't know if there is someone more qualified to speak on this than my guest today, Molly McLaughlin, because she is someone who actually studies sleep for a living. She created a company, sleep is a skill, which optimizes how people sleep through a blend of technology and behavioral change, as well as accountability. And the company, you know, Molly created it from scratching her own itch after a lifetime of poor sleep habits, culminating into a mega challenging bout of insomnia for months without end. She has a background in psychology and human behavior and went down the rabbit hole to solve her own sleep disturbances without sleeping aids. Um, She became fascinated with chronobiology and by extension, its practical applications to restore a state of homeostasis, not only to her sleep, but also to her life as a whole. Um, knowing the difference between a life with sleep and life without Molly has dedicated her life to sharing the forgotten skill set of sleep. And, you know, our conversation, uh, I, I recorded in advance. Our conversation is really interesting because we do talk about the science of, you know, the mechanism mechanisms underlying sleep. We talk about biofeedback. We talk about sleep supplements and, you know, light and, you know, how our senses interact with sleep and, and all of those 
fascinating elements to it. But it is personal in that Molly opens up about her struggles with insomnia and anxiety. Um, and I obviously, you know, share my inner monologue and my inner consciousness when I can't sleep. It's something where, as you'll listen to in the episode, for a long time in my life, particularly when I was younger, I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't fall asleep in under an hour, two hours and having to go to bed every night, you guys, is something that I would dread. And, I, you know, as I say in the episode, I would count down the hours. It's 6 p.m., you know, five more hours until I have to go to sleep, four more hours and three hours and it would be awful. Um, and in high school in particular, it, you know, I, I slept three, four hours a night because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't fall asleep. And when I was younger, I, as a kid, I, I, you know, read books on sleep and dreams and, you know, the different brain waves and the different strange stages of sleep and hoping to understand it and sort of solve the problem for myself. I think what happened in life as I grew up, you know, I, I don't even know if, I don't know if it was better managing my anxiety, um, my generalized anxiety and my OCD. I think the OCD was, a, was a, a major contributor to my insomnia, but it might, might have been better management of my anxiety. It might have been I calmed the hell down as a human being. Like when I was, you know, 15, 16, I was so high strung, you guys. I was nervous, hence the name of the podcast, um, all the time during the day. And I, it, you know, it'd be naive of me to say that that didn't impact my sleep. So I think it was a combination of some factors where now it's very rare that I have insomnia. Most of the time I'm able to fall asleep, you know, as soon as my head hits the pillow, if not before, uh, obviously from time to time, if I have like a big move or an exam the next day, then I would lay awake at night pondering the existential underpinnings of my life and, and so on and so forth. But for the most part, it's not an issue for me anymore. But, you know, I, Molly and I do talk at length about our personal experiences with insomnia and just relaying the message that you're really not alone and that if, if you know, you're lying awake at night for hours and you can't find a cure, you're not the only one. I mean, it, it really does impact tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. It's something that's certainly common among the human experience. Uh, so definitely listen closely to this conversation. You know, I, I really don't think there's a one-size-fits-all panacea, you know, a, a catch-all cure for insomnia that's going to work for everyone. But there's a lot of valuable information in this episode. That's all I'll say. Um, and without further ado, my conversation with Molly. Molly, welcome to Nervous Habits Podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, first things first, how did you sleep last night? <laughs> I love that question very well, very well. Uh, actually, I've been doing some experiments with um, uh, testing out a few uh, different dosings of um, kind of potassium. So I'm looking at playing with some potassium levels and, um, it seems to so far be working. So with that, uh, and in alignment with a lot of awareness around learned awareness around, uh, uh, a few of the things that we'll get into, I think, um, it's, it's culminated into a bit of a recipe that usually I can have some count onableness that I'll wake up feeling pretty great the next day. And when I don't, I, often know that I was to blame for the why of that. <laughs> I'm really happy to hear that. And I'd imagine that for a lot of people, Molly, with the, the pandemic and the quarantine, their sleep cycles have been disrupted. I mean, I, I've heard from friends and family who have experienced insomnia for the very first time and are wrestling, you know, trying to figure out 
you know, how to, how to modify their sleep cycle to avoid that. Have, have you heard the same? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I do make the argument that it can be an interesting time, um, kind of a unique situation in that we're able to take this extraordinary time on the planet and sculpt it to arguably for some of us to our advantage so that we are not dealing with normal, um, often some of the things that we encounter for people like social jet lag, which is, you know, kind of as it relates to social obligations and kind of going and deviating off of our normal sleep schedules. Um, and so when we are able to pull that back and um, kind of self-create a, by our own design, what I call this circadian crafted calendar or, you know, even our circadian crafted day, then from that place, we can start to weed out some of the um, behaviors that were causing us poor sleep previously. Yeah. And I think, I think that self-awareness, which we're definitely going to talk about like methods that people can adopt to, you know, really, uh, pay attention to, to aspects of their sleep quality, their sleep and what they can do differently there. Um, and before we dive into all the theoretical and pragmatics on how to sleep well, and, you know, sleep is a skill and everything. I do want to give you the floor, Molly, to share, you know, your experience with sleep and what piqued your interest in this, because it's definitely not something that's ultra common, you know, for someone to be a sleep specialist or a sleep researcher. So how did, you know, what prompted you to want to devote your life to this? Mm, great question. So, um, I full disclosure that it came from my scratching my own itch, if you will, of my really solving my own problem that I was, um, for many, many years, one of just, you know, one of the, one of the people that were doing all the things that I would now say, Oh, you we want to really get up under this and shift what isn't working about um, that relationship to sleep. I was doing all those things. So it was like that for many years um, and what that looked like, how that manifested was um, for most of my adult life, I just thought of myself as a extreme night owl and I would be going to bed really, really late. And as it got progressively worse, you know, there'd be times when I'd absolutely just be going to bed as the sun was rising, birds are chirping and I'm going to sleep, you know, to bed. And, um, and yet I was still righteous and justified about that and thought that, oh, well, it's fine. I can, you know, I make it work. I'm more creative at night. I had a lot of, um, thoughts around that until, um, my health started deteriorating a bit. I started having, um, you know, some stomach stuff that would look like the beginnings of an ulcer. I got shingles, um, you know, which usually is reserved for either extreme stress or, um, certainly a different age group than I was in at the time. Um, so, you know, cer certain signs until I started traveling full time and by bringing in jet lag into the mix, with that, that's when I started going through my own period of insomnia. And with that, it became just so clear to me suddenly that what was going to be really necessary was to get up under my sleep um, in a way that would transform it naturally and holistically versus going down another path, um, you know, of pharmaceuticals, which was scary for me. The idea that I might need to take something to sleep really went up against my personal identity. Um, so, you know, I, I was willing to do whatever it took to have it not go that way. Um, so with that, then just went deep down the rabbit hole and in the process spent money, a lot of money to really find what worked, what didn't. Um, so there was a lot of things that I did 
um, along the way, hypnosis, acupuncture, you know, mm-hmm. breath work, all of the things, right? Um, and and each step I took uh, did, you know, make a difference in awareness and help, but there was a lot of frustration, a lot of suffering along the way, and I felt very alone with all of that. Um, and so I, during that period, all I wanted was to have one, some examples of people powerfully dealing with the situation that I was in and showing that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, mm-hmm. So looking for those examples. And then secondly, being able to have what I used to say, I was like, why isn't there like a sleep support group or something? <laughs> like, why is that available? <laughs> um, and, you know, so, so with that, then began to, once I started slowly restoring my own sleep and then putting it to the next level of optimization, um, then what was, became important for me was um, to then share what I was learning with others. So it became just a, um, uh, kind of organic thing initially. And then it just grew into some small groups of friends until it, now it's this whole company and online training courses and podcasts and all the things. So it's been a wonderful ride and I'm really grateful now where I stand looking back on it, that it all went that way, even though in the midst of it, I thought it was the worst thing that could have happened. <laughs> and yet, yeah. uh, you know, now, um, getting to see that it really created a whole, uh, you know, real mission for me. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing all that. I think that it's inspiring to hear that you, you know, were able to take this, this experience, which was causing you distress and anxiety and, you know, reshape it into something positive and, 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 you know, creating that community and letting people know that if they, if they suffer from insomnia, if, you know, they, they have, uh, severe anxiety about not being able to go to sleep or, or not having great quality sleep. They're not alone. And, you know, I think that that's uh, certainly what what I took about your, uh, from your experience. And I do want to ask you, you know, if you're comfortable sharing, you you mentioned on your website, sleepisaskill.com, that sort of the tipping point for you was when you stayed awake for three days straight and, you know, then you, you know, you realized that this was something that, that you needed to really take seriously. And what did, if, if you can, you know, kind of think back to that. What did the world look to you? Uh, how did the world look like to you, Molly, uh, having stayed awake for three days? How did your oh your God. perception and your lived experience change? Oof, yeah, <laughs> it was not a pretty picture. Um, my really what was at the core of it too was just this experience of um, not being in the own, in my own driver's seat of my life at that point. You know, so. Um, that primal sort of ability to be able to say when you sleep and when you don't wasn't available in the same way um, that I had counted on it being previously, right? So mm-hmm. during that time, it was one, it felt um, uh, very, it felt very hopeless at the time. And it felt very, um, a really, really concerning of one, okay, is something wrong with me? Is this always going to be like this? Um, mm-hmm. And then two, you know, what's next? What do I do looking for guidance um, that I just unfortunately wasn't finding? And so it became my uh, kind of the self quest <laughs> to, to unravel it. Um, and, you know, really in that period, what I got to learn was how crucial and valuable and important sleep is and getting great sleep and just any sleep at that point, you know, um, yeah. but you know, just how much it shifts your experience of yourself and your own psychology. Um, you know, so it's, it's really, it, 
changed the prioritization for me in a way that was really, really uh, life changing. And so now I'm willing to do what's necessary to ensure that I get those effective results with my sleep in a way that the old me would have just thought, no way, like, you know, when we'll, we'll get into it, but there's a lot of behavioral change methods that we bring in that the, certainly the me of before this wouldn't have been willing to, um, to take on. Definitely. And, and, and you struck on something a moment ago, uh, that, that I think resonates with, with, a lot of people listening in that you said, you know, one of your negative thoughts that you had was, you know, will, will it always be this way? And I think, you know, I, I personally feel your pain there. I, I mentioned before we spoke that I had extremely bad insomnia in high school. And when Mm. I would lay awake, when I would lay awake at night, paralyzed with anxiety, I would ruminate and I would have thoughts like, you know, where do I go when I fall asleep? Will I fall asleep now? Uh, what happens in my brain when I sleep? Uh, you know, will I wake up? I must be the only one in in the entire school or the entire world awake right now. Is that sort of your inner monologue when, when you can't sleep as well? Oh my God. Yeah. It's a great job at kind of, um, giving the world of it. Cause that's, that really looks like how it is for when we are in those, you know, hyper aroused states, the record player just seemingly will never end. So for me, it was absolutely sounding like that. And then it was even, um, uh, underscored from this place of, Oh my God, uh, I have a business. I have responsibilities. How the hell am I going to be able to, to take these on and deal with these? There's no way. Mm. When will this stop? Um, and it really would be this, um, experience of how, how do I, um, get out of something that is just seemingly on repeat and with no, no stop sign, uh, (laughs) available. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I was, I was just going to reinforce what you just said about, about the repeat. It's a negative feedback loop because Mm -hmm. the more you, you, the more you stress out and, and, you know, you panic, oh, you know, you look at the clock. Okay. Okay. You know, if I fall asleep now, I get five and a half hours of sleep, fall asleep. Now I get five hours of sleep. It, It reinforces, you know, it's like a vicious cycle and the only way to break it, you know, my understanding and, and, you know, obviously you can, you can elaborate, elaborate on this, but is really, you know, resisting the urge to panic and, and sort of reining in that anxiety to break the, the feedback loop. Absolutely. Because then you begin future tripping on what does this mean? The meaning of all of it. Um, and then of course, then the, your physiology begins to fall in alignment with those thoughts and it begins to become a bit of this, um, whirlwind where you have this feedback loop where you are releasing certain chemicals that are going to make a difference with how you are processing these thoughts. Your whole body chemistry shifts in a way, um, that can be quite challenging and, you know, on the verge of, uh, to your point to use that word panic, it was absolutely periods of panic. Um, so it's a really important area and, you know, and I get that, while some people listening that might be like, well, I've never had that bad. It just might be certain nights where I wake up and it's annoying or, you know, I'm tired. Um, so while this might be more on the extreme end of the spectrum, um, you know, I think that there's something that can be, uh, gained from all of us. If we start to understand this was an acute experience of it, but there's also something very real that happens over the long term when we have chronic uh, sleep deprivation and some of the impacts that can be caused from that, from even um, just a little bit of sleep deprivation regularly and, of course, the acute situations um, to boot when you have more extreme insomnia. 
For sure. I think that that perspective uh, setting is really important because even if it's not even if it's something that's not severe, even if it is more acute, the fact that it's you know, it's chronic. The fact that it's been going on for a long time, um, you know, that's problematic and that shouldn't be ignored. Um, but I do want to get into the the theory behind sleep here because a lot of people, uh, you know, s- s- sort of wonder we, we spend three we spend a third of our lives sleeping and it's not well understood at all why exactly we need to sleep. There's a lot of theories floating around out there. Um, I touched on them back in episode 12 of the podcast. What have you found for as to what the biological basis for sleep is in our bodies? Oh, there's there's a number of benefits and um, important elements that make sleep so crucial. So, of course, if we look back, so a lot of at sleep is a skill, you know, that even the name, um, you know, harkens to kind of this irony that you might think that sleep would not actually be a skill and that it would just be sort of innate. Um, but mm. a lot of what we do is kind of looking back at the template of, you know, hunter gatherer days to understand the difference between how we used to sleep and not even just hunter gatherer days, even all the way up largely right up until Edison, um, and, you know, the advent of the, of the light bulb and the ability to suddenly, um, augment our days in a, uh, in a nature that is, quite rare that we certainly weren't able to do previously. So from that place, um, if you if you go back to how sleep used to be, um, you know, it was very count onable and, uh, you know, we'll get into some of the the reasoning why that's important to look at. But of course, in from a Darwinian perspective, if it wasn't that important, it's very, very likely that something so um, that puts us in such a vulnerable state to be really, uh, kind of out of, out of the game for at least, you know, anywhere for many of us from, you know, around with the goal, seven, eight hours. Um, if that was able to be cut out of some of our evolution, it likely would have been, but it certainly has not. So it's the why for that. So if we go for the why, um, some of the things that we've been, so there's still a lot of question marks in the world of sleep, which makes it very interesting area. Um, and some of the things that we know. So sleep is crucial for immune function, very important, um, very key topic right now on our planet with as it relates to the virus. Um, so mm-hmm. for the immune functionality, um, for cardiovascular health, and more recently an understanding around um, brain health in a way that relates to something known as glymphatic drainage, which is kind of a, a cleansing process for our brain each night during slow wave sleep. Um, so that one's been getting a lot of press because it links up with some of these concerns around when you don't achieve that, um, then you can be setting yourself up arguably for, um, neurological problems. So whether Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia in that, um, in that zone. Uh, so those are some of those things, but then furthermore, then we're also looking at, um, uh, an, the ability to normalize some of our very crucial hormones. Uh, so cortisol and melatonin, um, really can get normalized as we, as it relates to our relationship to our sleep, um, for our waistlines, leptin and ghrelin. So hunger satiety hormones, um, get impacted, you know, verse around the quantity and quality of the sleep that we get. Um, you know, some of our sex hormones, um, for women sleep can be particularly important as we have also beyond just the circadian rhythm. We also have to be concerned about our infradian rhythm. Um, you know, so those, 
that monthly cycle, but how much it ebbs and flows really week to week for us throughout, um, you know, even just in each calendar month. So those are some things. And then, of course, we have uh, more of those kind of esoteric uh, areas where we look at the psychology fallout of when we don't have enough sleep and some of, um, you know, a little bit harder to measure, but, um, you know, just are the basis of our moods and heightened, uh, rates of anxiety, um, you know, glucose instability, just tons of things that begin to fall out of whack, even for just a short, uh, span of sleep deprivation. So when we look at travelers and how much more they are set up for, um, uh, for poor immune health and to get sick. Granted, you know, there's a lot of things they're also going through too, often for air travel and altitude and reduced oxygen and a lot of other factors, but even often just that change in, um, in our circadian rhythm can really make a difference as it relates to that sleep deprivation element of things. Um, so those are just some of the things that go, get thrown off whack when our sleep is disturbed. Right, and and that's that's a beautiful uh, synopsis, Molly. I I think you hit on um, a lot of a lot of the major theories that I was familiar with. And something you alluded to um, a minute ago was the quantity versus the quality piece uh, when it comes to sleep. And I don't know about you, but I've had nights where I've slept ten hours and woke up feeling exhausted, and then yeah. nights where I slept five or six and you know I wake up feeling refreshed. So you know why is it that sometimes the quantity of sleep, it, it's a little counterintuitive in terms of how you subjectively might feel the next day. Yeah, great question. Um, and so there's a couple of things there. One, when we look at those times when we had inordinate amounts of sleep, um, and for some people, they experience that a lot, and it's, it has its own name around hypersomnia when we're sleeping um, a, a lot, um, you know, above some of the average, uh, you know, amounts. And so that can actually bring about its own host of uh, problems um, because often when we look at sleep, some of these more deviant uh, numbers, whether on the on the plus side, augmenting that sleep quantity element or uh, on the lower end of the spectrum, there's can be concerns on both sides. Um, so when you do have those times when it's like, I should be, I should feel great. I should feel on top of the world. I just had nine, 10, whatever hours of sleep. Right. And yet the concern is, is that um, if we were able to have hooked, you know, one of us up to a polysonogram, the kind of the gold standard right now in the understanding of our sleep quality. And when we say sleep quality, it's really looking at the ratio and timing of um, different stages of sleep in our sleep cycles and how it all falls, because there's a, you know, kind of a particular architecture that we often like to see for people that, uh, that they're cycling through each night. And what can often happen when we have those times when it's really, really long is that if we were to be hooked up, the results that we might see, the architecture might not be displaying what um, some of our goals might be to get often some of that rich, slow wave sleep, which is again, when we get um, that that kind of janitorial process of our brain, the clean out period, um, that's a really important element of it. Also, you know, growth hormone, it, we didn't even mention that part, but that's another big factor during slow wave sleep. Um, and 
then when we were moving over to REM and just that ability to kind of catalog or at least some of the theories to be able to catalog um, some of our memories and our thoughts throughout the day and sort out, you know, some problems that we're dealing with and ramp our, uh, our brains and our bodies up for that following for that day that we're waking up to because usually REM is um, occurs closer to our wake up times. So if we have those super long uh, stretches of sleep often what we can see is just an enormous amount of light sleep, not always, but when we wake up not feeling refreshed, that that can likely be part of it. Um, and then there are those times when it's a short period of sleep and it sleep is very, very dependent on, um, a number of factors, but some of them being, you know, just the consistency by which you were getting the sleep before. So your sleep tonight is going to be dependent on the sleep you had the day before and the day before that. And so what I mean by that is perfect example is, um, you know, something happens and you don't get that much sleep tonight. So the next night, what the body, it's so intelligent that it's looking to set things up in a way that will help support what's known as rebound sleep. And with rebound sleep where, um, the body will go right it will try to go right into what it needs to go into. So whether or not it needs to kind of do a lot of repair work, um, you know, can go into that slow wave sleep or the REM sleep to deal with kind of, you know, maybe some stressors that you're dealing with. Um, so there's a lot of things that it will know how to uh, often prioritize. There are things then in turn that we might be doing that um, impact its ability to do that. So certain medications, certain uh, you know, alcohol, caffeine, uh, you know, certain things and behaviors and meal timing and a lot of things can impact our ability to get to those rich states of sleep that the body is looking to achieve. You touched on a couple interesting things there that, that I personally wasn't aware of, this this concept of rebound sleep. Um, I, I don't know if, if you heard this, but when I was growing up and we had you know a big exam, let's say on a Wednesday, everyone yeah. would always say that it wasn't as important the sleep that you got the night before on Tuesday, but the sleep that you got Monday, two nights before. So is that yes. an example of, of this rebound sleep because it has like a domino effect into the next night? Yeah, you know, so there is something to that because, um, and you will find that if you largely maintain a fairly consistent sleep schedule and, um, you know, at sleep is a skill, what we're looking to achieve as much as possible and still have a rich and full life in the 21st century um, is as much as we can setting ourselves up powerfully to find a bedtime and a wake time that we can maintain. Really, the goal is seven days a week, which for many, certainly for me, was more of a radical idea because it would be like, well, but I have a totally different thing that happens on this day and this day and this day. So I'm going to need to go to bed many hours, you know, plus or minus because of that thing. Um, and mm -hmm. when we, when we do, when we have that sort of inconsistency, um, then there can, it can be more challenging for us to deal with sleep deprivation, more extreme sleep deprivation than someone who largely is getting, you know, whatever works for them granted, um, to be able to subscribe or to, to say, Oh, you need to get seven or eight hours. It very much depends on the quantity and quality and the, the age and the gender and a lot of things for each person. But, you know, having said that, then if the average person is getting pretty much around seven hours, pretty solid sleep, and then they experience, you know, one night to your point of before exams or something, then when that day comes, they are often, if they're in healthy, um, you know, physical and, you know, kind of emotional shape, they're able to make that 
transition much more eloquently and gracefully than um, than some of our more sleep deprived or abnormal um, sleep pattern counterparts. And you know, one of the mm-hmm. cool things, because of course with sleep as a skill, we're looking to bring about technology, accountability, and behavioral change into the mix. So when we bring into technology, some of the things that we can actually measure, which makes it really interesting, is um, something related to HRV, so heart rate variability. And it's currently stands as one of our best understandings or um, black and white readout understandings of how the autonomic nervous system is functioning. And when we see that, we're able to get more of a sense of how much perceived stress our body is under and also even environmental stress. So it's a very finicky number, but that can be a really good sign of if you large have a, have a pretty healthy and robust um, signs around your HRV for yourself, then when mm-hmm. you do experience the, that sleep deprivation, something happens, um, then often you can rebound in that way that is more powerful than someone who hasn't done that prep work. Got you. Got you. And I I wonder, because you talked about variability a moment ago, and I just wonder why, and and this is something that I'm sure you've come across, for a lot of people, you know, they're able to to get by and be, uh, perform efficiently and at their optimum functions with four or five hours a night, you know, you have the the super sleepers or or whatever the terminology is, and others, I'm sure you have friends that if they don't get their requisite eight hours, they can't keep their eyes open. Um, And of course, you have people in history who were famous, you know, some of the most successful people uh, were folks who got by and thrived on five hours of sleep. So how much sleep, you know, taking into consideration this variability is really necessary across the board? Hmm. So it's a great question. And the concern is when we have um, kind of thought leaders that purport to, and certainly um, it seems to be a bit of a changing of the tune more recently of a prioritization with sleep, particularly with this um, pretty astounding link up with sleep deprivation and some of these neurological concerns. So like a perfect example of that was um, Madeline Albright used to be one that would often really tout the importance of, um, you know, just being able to uh, step through, you know, any sort of tiredness and, you know, get by on four to five hours regularly, routinely, and unfortunately then, um, you know, experience Alzheimer's uh, later in life. So, you know, understanding that there is a responsibility for, for all of us when we do and and I think for good reason too. I think there's um and I was of this camp for a long time that okay it's just a mental thing. So even if you only get a couple hours of sleep, no big deal. You know you just gotta be mentally sound and then be able to work your way through it. And it turns out that our understanding right now is it doesn't quite look that way. And also you know I know I've mentioned this hunter gatherer concept. Um and to clarify more about why I say that is that um, it can help us really look back with simplicity versus kind of the the jumbled relationship and really dysfunctional relationship that um, a lot of our Western societies have with sleep now and you know, presumably why we are dealing with such high rates of um, sleep deprivation now. And previously, the most simple thing would be many of us would be outside, um, living in more of an outside environment than we do right now. So what that would look like Mm -hmm. is, you know, the sun would rise, the temperature would uh, rise up in, in the environment, and that 
uh, both visual cue of the light and then the temperature cue would be a sign for our body because it's actually always trying to understand what time it is with our circadian rhythm. So then we would be walking through that, um, that part of the day with all the light. We know that we only have a short period of time where the light is available to us. So we would be very active. It'd be an exertion period of the day. And then we would move right on over um, to that darkness period. And then once the sun would set, then besides maybe like a bonfire or something of that nature, we were pretty much done for the day in a lot of ways because there wasn't much else that you could do. It's really pitch black. And, um, you know, so, so beyond that, then you had what you were looking at was hours and hours of just really total darkness for the most case, for the most part. Um, and so, so the reason that's important is melatonin is known as the hormone of darkness and it really, um, the, the part of the cue to secrete melatonin in a particular way is from that light. So once there's the absence of light and we go into darkness, that's when melatonin knows to do its thing. Um, and now in such a, what I call a dark deprived society, we are often not experiencing, um, times of total darkness in the, in the same way. So how does this relate to the amount of, you know, um, sleep that we should be getting? Well, one, we can look to that as a bit of a cue that it was very unlikely that there'd be many people that be running around in darkness, just only sleeping for three, four hours. Um, it would just be a bit more of a rarity, most likely. Um, and Beyond that, our understanding of people that might have that gene where they are able to sleep, uh, very short sleepers, um, <clears throat> seems to be very, very few and far between. And so from that place, what we know is that if you are to put in a, more of a blanket response around the, the hours that we can, that we can be getting, um, what we do see is that sub seven hours. So below seven hours is where we start to have people run into, um, kind of cognitive decline and it will look at just basic things. And the concern is that they, a lot of, you know, in some of these studies, people will be very, um, forthright in saying that they don't feel bad at all. <laughs> so they'll be like, Oh, I feel great. No, no problems here. But then when they would be tested and go through different, um, you know, kind of thought exercises, then there'd be a lot more errors, um, more problems that would indicate that their cognitive functionality wasn't quite at the level that it could be when then they've come back and be tested when they've had more sufficient sleep. So one of the areas that we know is that that below seven line for average healthy adults. Now it's very different based on if you're a teenager, if you're a kid, if you're, um, you know, over 65. So this happens to be for a particular group, but that can be one of the baselines that we can look at. And then, um, what is interesting is about the level of tech that is available right now, you know, still the gold standard is to, you know, be in a sleep lab and be able to get that polysonogram and have more of a clear understanding of what's going on brain-wise. Uh, so much of what we understand about each state is derived from particularly the different brain waves that we're um, exhibiting at different stages. But at the same time, there are some exciting advancements around some of the consumer grade, um, you know, different uh, sleep tech that's available right now. Um, while it's not to that level, but it, it can help us understand our, even if we are getting, you know, that seven something hours, what type of quality is there? 
Okay, wow. Uh, there's there's a lot lot to unpack there. Uh, yeah, so I know. The latter. No, 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 no. It's great. It's actually. I mean, we we could title this episode "Mythbusters" because you just you just cracked one. Because the latter part of what you just said was that there's a myth that that I thought was true that people who there were people out there who could get less than you know six seven hours and thrive. And now what you're saying is a lot of these people don't realize that even if they are performing efficiently or at a high level, they could be doing better. You know, you bring them into a lab and, you know, give them a little extra, uh, extra sleep, maybe eight, eight hours instead of seven and they're, they're scoring higher. So, I mean, is that, uh, does that sound like it's the case? Yeah, we do. You know, there's always in, in nature, there's always going to be some deviations or some, um, kind of outliers. Um, so, you know, there, there can be some of those rarities, but largely, um, I think what, what is important to remember is that often, particularly in the 21st century, what the vast majority of what we're seeing is that the average person um, has a lot of things that they have a say over in their sleep quantity and quality and that they might not even be aware of. And certainly I was not aware of half of these things. That's why I was felt called to even create this whole company because it was just this thing of like, wait, why does everyone not know about this? <laughs> you know, yeah. like some of the things, um, that we can do to improve our, um, you know, one of the things that we do a third of our lives every night is, um, is really an important thing to look at. So to underscore that there, while there might be some of those abnormalities, the vast majority of people, I think the concern is that they might not even know what's possible for themselves around their sleep. I mean, certainly the me of today that can, you know, count honorably, uh, largely have a whole quantifiable um, record of my sleep that is, uh, is f far superior than how I used to have it. Um, you know, that person had no idea what was possible, you know, before a bunch of years back and didn't even know that feeling, um, count honorably great was, was an option. And, and I didn't right. also know that part of the source point of that was around the sleep. Absolutely. And, and you also mentioned a few minutes ago, you talked about society's dysfunctional relationship to sleep. Um, and I think a lot of it, you know, you mentioned Edison, the invention of the light bulb uh, earlier, yeah. elongating the day. And now people could stay up with electricity, you know, even even after what was natural. And I think even before COVID-19, Molly, we've had a serious problem with sleep deprivation in America. And a lot of it has to do with our use of smartphones. And most of my friends... Yeah. You know, they, they sleep with their phones next to their beds as an alarm, and then they end up picking up their phone to set their alarm at, you know, 1130. Uh, and then, you know, an hour goes by, they're on Instagram or Reddit, uh, you know, and, and it's 1230. They, they just lost an hour of sleep. And so have you found that this this problem of sleep deprivation that's really not just American specific, it's all across the Western world, that, it you know, technology and smartphone use is, is most to blame? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that we look at, um, you know, at Sleep as a Skill is this concept of circadian rhythm entrainment, which is just, um, you know, really a series of words that points to what are some of the key factors, you know, external cues largely that will, um, that have the ability to throw off that kind of, um, uh, that 24-hour cycle that as humans we are a part of. So um, coming from that framework, if we look at it, the top thing, the number one thing to impact the the functioning of that is light. So 
light suddenly takes on a really, not suddenly, but if we begin looking at this and we hadn't previously, you we can have the opportunity to really respect light in a way that many of us might not know to do. Um, and so what I mean by that is that points to what you are discussing about the smartphone. And that's one element on the smartphones. Of course, there's all kinds of other um, kind of cognition elements that go into if you were to look at someone, um, you know, kind of hooked up to uh, an EEG and understand what is going on, even just as the as they're using a smartphone, um, depending on the type of content that they're taking in, that can be a whole charged and stimulating activity. But in the case of sleep, uh, one of the first things that we want to look at is what is the type of light that is being put out from that smartphone. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that actually makes it really wonderfully addictive is that there's such large um, uh, quantity of blue and green light that come from our smartphones and our computers and um, TV and and also all of our, uh, much of our interior lighting from a place of uh, LEDs. Many of our uh, lights have been switched over post 80s to LED based lights that have a much higher ratio of um, kind of that cool light. And all of those things, and if you look into like phototherapy, that's a whole, you know, like I have psoriasis and back in the day, my doctor would actually write a prescription um, to be able to get, you know, red light therapy. And so that would be, you would, you know, uh, treat the, the psoriasis with that. Um, so it helps us understand, oh, this actually can be a drug-like um, uh, element to, to our lives when we look at our, our lighting. So um, light is number one on circadian rhythm entrainment, and below that is, of course, the counterpart, darkness. Um, So those two things become really important to getting great Mm -hmm. sleep, and there's a whole area around that. And, of course, as you're speaking to with the smartphone, um, that's something that we many of us have, you know, maybe a foot away from our faces, um, just almost acting as, like, our own little light box um, that... (laughs) can be quite problematic to the the secretion of the melatonin that we uh, depend on. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 fascinating, you know, from a psychological perspective, which, you know, what you touched on um, that. I just wonder if having this device so close, you know, th- this device, knowing that it could go off at any moment, assuming that, that your notifications are turned on with sound is disruptive to just the process of entering, you know, past that light sleep that you mentioned earlier. Do you personally sleep with your phone next to your bed? well for me the old me oh my god it was like a extension of me and the the me of post my own issues with my sleep um it has a whole new relationship so um one the other thing you know that can be of a concern for people that are uh mindful of things like the bluetooth and emf output um if that is something that you are um, in the conversation of then that's yet another thing that another reason why you wouldn't want to have a phone right next to you while you're sleeping um you know of course many of us know not to maybe stand right in front of a microwave or something while that's on um but we don't necessarily always think the same way of our tech and of course it's not a microwave, but it is um, something to be mindful of uh, the the lack of total information that we have at the moment on, you know, the same way um, x-rays back in the day, they used to have, they would give x-rays to, you know, kids and for people in, you know, different shoe stores and, you know, just casually x-ray people's feet to get a sense of what type of shoes they need. Um, you know, there's is concerns around the fact that we 
sleep with our phones under our pillows and what, you know, that might do for some of our brain chemistry throughout the night. Um, so it's one reason why you might not want to have that near you. And the, but the second reason is the more obvious, which is just, um, one, the light and two, the stimulation factor that right. gets paired with that light. And so when we have the, the shots of, um, blue and green light, there can be this dopamine effect and kind of this, um, it's more alerting. And, and this is by design. Um, this was, you know, in our morning sunlight, um, and, uh, throughout the day and from, from sun full spectrum light, uh, will contain elements of blue. And it's really meant to, uh, signal for ourselves since we are diurnal creatures that for us, we are meant to be more active during the day and at sleep at night. And so that blue light for us is have a, has a bit of a stimulating effect. So when we have those smartphone smartphones by our bed at night, um, that can just be really addictive to, you know, the, like, we're just not really equipped to yeah. handle with that sort of addiction, you know? So sometimes for habit change, it can just make sense to, um, if you want to achieve a, a certain result, then coupling, um, your, your goals with a certain action. So what that can look like in the world of sleep is, oh my goodness, there's even, this shows the sign of the times, um, Ariana Huffington ha has had a product available, which is literally a bed, like $50 or something bed where you tuck in the smartphone at night before you go. Oh my God. To, I'm so not even surprised. You know, so it speaks to just, and, and it, it gets sales, you know, and, and it's, I mean, it's a genius idea too, at the same time, because it's something so ridiculous that we are attached to this thing, um, and to give it some sort of ritual. So maybe you don't need to necessarily do that, but it was, you could certainly, I always put it, you know, um, you know, on, on this nightstand and I put it on the charger and then, and then I go into my bedroom or whatever it is for Absolutely. you, but just achieving that, uh, knowingness that that's how it goes can help with the clarity because once we have the, the gray area of, well, maybe tonight I'll bring it in and ugh, then it's, you're dead in the yeah. water. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, exactly. Like I, and I've spoken about technology addiction quite a bit on the pod. I actually had an addiction specialist on a couple weeks ago mm, talk, sure. uh, talking along these lines. And I think for me, exactly what you're saying, I, you know, I don't look at my phone before bed. I turn my phone off. So, you know, I can't get any notifications. I put it in, in another room and, you know, make sure it's not, uh, it's not going to disturb my sleep. Uh, and, and I actually recommend to, to folks listening, buy an old fashioned alarm clock, go on Amazon or, you know, on, on Best yeah. Buy, whatever, spend 10 bucks, buy an old fashioned alarm. So you don't need to look at your phone before bed. Cause you know, what you do is you turn your, uh, turn your phone on, you put the alarm on and then, then you lose that autonomy, that agency that I'm always talking about, you know, and, and you give that up and you're suddenly, you know, five seconds turns into two hours. So get an alarm clock, use your, um, you know, use the alarm clock instead of your phone. And on that topic, is it, I also have heard Molly that, you know, it's not healthy to wake up with an alarm clock. Um, you know, that, that you should just wake up when your body is, is naturally ready. Uh, I, you know, obviously that's not pragmatic, but is that true that waking up with an alarm is bad for you? Hmm. Well, number one, great advice about the old school alarm clock. That's awesome. Um, and number two, for anyone that's like, Oh, I can't do that because I have, um, you know, meditations I need to do at night, or I listen to audible or I do this, you know, uh, the kind of the objections, um, of course with innovation, there's a new, uh, product that just was on Indiegogo lofty and, um, they're an alarm clock. I actually just saw them at, at this tech event, um, back when we had events, uh, <laughs> in the beginning part yeah. of the year. 
And uh, they offer, you know, a alarm clock that can basically stream in, um, you know, meditations or anything that you might have as your objection as to why you need that phone. But then the difference being then you don't have all the distractions of text messaging and social media and all of that. So it, it can help to um, eliminate that call out for many people like, oh, well, I can't possibly. Um, so there, there always is that ability to think outside the box and find a way to make it all work. Um, exactly. yeah. And so, so that part is, um, uh, one element, but then as far as waking up with the alarm, yeah, you're pointing to something really powerful is, um, which is that for many, many years, we certainly didn't have an alarm clock. And, um, in a lot of ways, again, you know, we are living in a time when we're largely zoo animals, I like to put it, of um, yeah. so many of us are just inside uh, such an inordinate amount. Um, and even before the lockdown, some of the numbers were in the Western world, um, upwards of 90% uh, of our days for most of us are spent enclosed inside. Um, and I would wager that that number is even higher right around now. So, um, with that, we are devoid of a lot of the external cues that we used to get. And, you know, we alluded to the difference of when you, when we were outside, you know, many, many years ago and when the sun would rise, that temperature, um, the temperature change and, uh, the light change alone, those two factors, which are some of the most powerful factors in, um, circadian health, those would set as enough of an external alarm clock for us. But since we don't really have that available now. Um, then what you're looking to be depending on is the weakness or strength of your circadian rhythm. So it is an interesting thing to know that many of us can either have a robust circadian rhythm or a very weak one. And, you know, to continue to use myself example, when I was living in the heart of Manhattan and, you know, had no clue when the sun would rise or set or any of that stuff, my circadian rhythm was arguably very, very weak. Um, so from that place, the, knowingness of being able to, um, uh, count on my body to know when was appropriate to get uh, tired and when was appropriate to wake up was very loose. Um, and unfortunately a lot of us in our modern society have something maybe akin to that, maybe not as extreme as mine was, but, um, you know, a, some version of that. So if we are able to then get to this workability of um, a consistent sleep schedule of around seven days a week where we just kind of, you know, we, many of us might have those friends that just no matter what day of the week it is, no matter what's going on, they always wake up at whatever, yep. 530 or something. Um, yeah. And yeah, those people can be really interesting to look at, um, look to what their patterns are because often they are exhibiting a, a pretty strong circadian rhythm. Um, so when we have that, that can be really, really valuable because, um, that can help keep us on track for, um, having more reliable sleep architecture night after night after night versus kind of being all over the place. So if we are able to get to that goal, it is a tremendous experience. Um, you know, so for me, I'm still fascinated by the fact that I get tired at the same time each night and I wake up at around the same time each morning, which had never, uh, you know, happened to me in the past. Um, and so to know that your body has such inward, you know, intelligence, um, is really pretty cool. So uh, what I would say to that, the more short answer is what's possible is a training of that, but it takes a lot of work that often is outside of the, the normal bell curve right now. 
Absolutely. Uh, so I think I think it's interesting because, you, you know, you're you're presenting this this dichotomy of waking up, you know, as a result of natural processes versus forcing your body to, to get up unnaturally and creating this this uh, this asymmetry, this this lack of rhythm. Um, and I, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I can never wake up when my alarm goes off. I mean, I, I am not a morning person and I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah. I had I had this alarm clock. It was called clocky. And essentially, none of the other <laughs> alarm clocks were working for me. So it was this little R2D2-shaped robot that would roll around the room, making these like these yes. annoying beeping noises. Are you, have you heard of Clocky? Uh, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I had to, you know, crawl on my hands and knees to to find him as he scurried around the room. And you know, I, my roommates over the years have said, Ricky, I don't know how you don't wake up. It sounds like you know. Uh, a grenade is going off and, and you're just sleeping through it. So I think I, I think to your point, you know, I, I'm I'm like a, a you know just another example here of someone who would benefit from that seven day consistent sleep schedule instead of yeah. you know staying up you know not getting much sleep during the work and, and school week and then catching up on the weekends because it sounds like catching up on the weekends doesn't really pay off that sleep debt. A hundred and ten percent, yeah. And you know, I think what's happened here is. Um, you know, since Pandora's box is opened with technology, like what's likely is we're not going to be, you know, throwing out the tech anytime soon. And if anything, it's going to get more um, exaggerated in upcoming years. So with that, I think what can be available is to play within that world of um, utilizing the amazing innovations that do come out of, of technology and um, taking and using those to our advantage to help make the behavioral change necessary um, to stay on that schedule. So one of the most you know easiest and achievable things for many of us, I think, is to begin with some of these um, sleep trackers on the market that can help uh, us be able to see the impact of some of our behaviors on our sleep specifically, but then how that plays out in our overall health. Um, you know, so there's a number of different trackers that are meant really to look at sleep specifically in a uh, kind of more nuanced way. And of course, you know, they're, they're still polysonograms and there still are things that aren't, you know, as um, they'll continue to get uh, more and more improved, but they can give us a nice, even just a basic, um, what, but in the in the past used to just be known as a sleep diary. So years back before this kind of tech was available, the advice if you were having sleep troubles was to um, keep a log, you know, like a analog old school mm -hmm. style sleep diary. But what these will do, um, or these wearables are um, kind of automate that process for you. And they, many of them are fairly good at this point, at, at least being able to one um, track the total time duration of our sleep, which even from this, the difference between that and, um, the subjective, uh, response for people of what type of, uh, what, what the quantity of the sleep that they got is often differs because people will have a lot of gray area. Well, I don't know. I think, I don't know. I went into the bedroom at around nine, but then this happened and right. this happened. So, you know, <laughs> and so what you would get for your stats, as far as where you're even logging is often a lot of question marks next to it. Whereas the tech can help eliminate some of that. But then secondly, what I think is really, really, um, and the practical takeaway is that you can start to see how your behaviors um, will impact that more automated biofeedback loop that we'll be able to achieve. So what that can look like is, um, for instance, I often used to have the um, situation of this 
this idea that my evenings, I would stack the majority of my meals in the evening. <laughs> I would, um, you know, drink in the evening. I would, mm-hmm. you know, watch, I don't know, stressful thriller type things or whatever it would be. All these items that I would put into my evenings, I would then, and I just had no real connection that that would impact my, um, not only my sleep, but also just my, my overall health and, you know, kind of recovery abilities. Now, when you have the um, different trackers, what you can get to see is, oh, what? When I eat a huge meal before bed, not even huge, a decent sized meal um, before bed, uh, my heart rate's going to go up. My body temperature is going to go up. My respiratory rate's going to go up. Uh, I'm going to experience a, a tank often in my HRV, my heart rate variability. Um, mm-hmm. And then there is the likelihood of some fragmentation of my sleep. And, you know, if you do have some of the more EEG based um, uh, sleep trackers now, again, still not polysonogram, but they can get a little bit closer to understanding some of the sleep stages. Um, so all when you piece all that information together, you can start to really quickly see um, and think twice about, oh, am I going to have that drink tonight? Am I going mm-hmm. to, you know eat that big, you know, whatever, have a late night delivery or all of those things. And those might seem small, but, um, layered and, you know, day in, day out, 365 days a year times by a couple years, you know, running, keep doing that, keep doing that to you. The compounding effect is enormous. Yeah. I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm, I'm biting my lips. I'm just like, I, you know, I late night snacks. Yep. I do that late night drinks. Yep. Um, you know, uh, caffeine in the middle of the night. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a perpetrator here, but I think it is, it is important (laughs) when you talk about self-awareness and self-monitoring the sleep logs, some of this tech to make sure that you're mindful of these practices before they become habits. Like you said, 365 days a year. Um, and I know we've touched on insomnia quite a bit here, but let's say someone's listening to this right now at 4 a.m. Um, and they're tossing and turning. I don't know, you know, I don't know why they'd be listening to it then, but but you know, <laughs> let's say they're they're struggling, they've tried everything. Obviously, you are a gold mine of of lived experiences, Molly. You know, you've tried sleep clinics, sleep studies, meditation apps, heavy workouts, alcohol. What have you found personally in your lifetime? to be the most effective thing that's helped you um, or maybe helped one of your clients to fall asleep in, in one of these scenarios? Mm, great question. Um, well, one, you know, the so if you're dealing with late night wake-ups and then the frustration that can often come about with that, um, one of the things that I like now, uh, one of the key approaches for many, many years has been CBTI, which is cognitive behavioral therapy specifically applied to insomnia. And so some of the guidance on that is to um, take action when something like that happens. So you get up, you leave your bed, you go into another room, you do something more calming and relaxing for a period of time for around, you know, 15, 20 minutes and reassess, um, you know, or however long it might take for you to get sleepy again and then go back in and try it again. The thinking being that then Pavlovian style, you aren't linking up your bedroom with stress or frustration or all of those things. Um, 
Now, and that can be so helpful for some people. I've had some clients that really respond well to that. Um, and then there's another school of thought. Unfortunately for me, it with my overactive thinking anyway, um, I yeah. was often going out and then just being like, well, why am I out here? I don't want to be out here. I want to be sleeping, but I can't sleep. So what do I do? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, so it actually, for me, wasn't the most effective approach. One thing that I found really helpful was um, uh, there's something known as ACTI, which is um, more acceptance commitment therapy applied to insomnia. So uh, that's just a bit more from the mental approach to it of almost like a Chinese finger trap, you know, when you try to resist it and the more you resist it, the more stuck you are in it. Um, but then when you kind of are able to realize that you're in kind of that state and then relax from there, then suddenly you can kind of get out of the trap. Um, now, wow. believe me, I know this is all easier said than done as someone that really has a overactive mind often on default anyway. So I do get that that can, the concept of that can be um, challenging in the moment, but it can be one of the most rewarding things if we work on from a place of um, setting up the rest of our lives to set the conditions for great sleep. And what that often looks like is, you know, the... Um, ample, you know, sunlight elements throughout the entire day. And I know that can sound like, well, how does sunlight relate to, you know, wake ups at night, but it really, really does. And it helps, um, anchor our circadian rhythm in a way that once you get to that nighttime, um, then you've, you've helped set the stage for your body to have a knowingness of, um, uh, that, okay, this is now bedtime. Now we need to, uh, to create enough of this hormone production in a, of melatonin in a way that will help support having a full night of sleep really largely devoid of, of as much of those wake-ups. Now, having said that, that's why a lot of what I say about sleep as a skill is that we have to impact the days to make a difference in the nights. So part of my approach is once we get to those, once we get to the night and we have those wake-ups, um, stepping into this concept that, once we're there, we're going to practice this acceptance, you know, um, kind of commitment therapy, which is going into just noticing, okay, we're awake and not fighting it and just, you know, really stepping into, um, uh, kind of greeting the often emotions that will come up as a response. So often mm. it can be for me when it was during that time, it was like major anxiety from a place of, Oh my goodness, like, what is this doing to me? What is this doing to my health? Um, you know, and so instead just being able to kind of notice, Oh, okay, I'm getting anxious again and spotting that's, it's kind of like an active meditation. Um, Definitely. and what can be beneficial about that is then you're still in your bed. You're not kind of, um, you know, wandering around weirdly doing laundry at three in the morning or whatever, you know, some of the, um, you know, recommendations will be around leaving your bed. And it's not to poke fun of it because I know for many, many people it's been CBTI can be super transformative. Um, and I think there's room to play with, um, not fighting the fact that we are up and also, and more of a kind of, um, you know, uh, this is more of just my own, uh, little esoteric, but when we do have those times, when we are starting to have a number of uh, instances of wake-ups, from the psychological perspective, we can start to look at what is my body trying to tell me right now? You know, so for me, part of what was going on was just massive amounts of stress and anxiety and, you know, entrepreneurship and responsibilities and uh, just the way I was 
organizing and running my life wasn't working. And so it was the sleep, the manifestation of, um, you know, sleep deprivation was almost just this really effective way to get me to change some of my actions. Um, you know, the same mm -hmm. way around like tax season, we might have massive amounts of stress and anxiety um, to get us to take new action. So that's actually can be a beneficial thing. The same thing you could regard around your sleep. Now, um, and, and if we are finding that there are um, repetitive instances of wake ups and we're really not particularly, you know, anxious or dealing with anything major. And yet we're feeling some of that. There can also be the physiological element. Sometimes there are things, um, in our, in our health that are impacting our, uh, sleep results. And that's when we kind of put in the el other element of the sleep tripod, I call it. So to get great sleep, you need to have, um, uh, the, the psychology, your physiology and your environment all really functioning, uh, really pretty well and together in a way that helps support getting that solid tripod of effective sleep. So if one of those things are out of it, then you might be experiencing some of the, um, uh, maladaptive behavior of that, of the sleep problems. Well said. Uh, number one, where was this ACTI when I was a kid? It, it sure, you know, cause, yeah. cause I, I, de I definitely can relate to the mindset of like, well, shit, why am I, you know, why am I awake fighting myself, having that inner conflict? And uh, number two, just everything you're saying, I mean, I, I feel like you really, you really get it. I, 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 you know, I've never felt so, so understood when it comes to insomnia because Aww. I had the same experience of just wandering around yeah. in, in anxiety and panic. And, you know, I would try to sleep on the floors of different rooms. I mean, it was, it was sort of, you know, it was yes. sort of illogical and the <laughs> mental experience, you know, j just a window into my stream of consciousness. I, I mentioned earlier some of the things that I would think about, but it just felt like the more that you, um, you know, the more that you placed your mind and your thought process on sleep, why am why am I not falling asleep? Why am I not falling asleep? The less likely you were to fall asleep. For me, yeah. what 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 helps is I've developed these these uh these games almost. I I don't know if you have some of them, but one of the things I like to do. I'm a, I'm a baseball fan, so when I can't sleep. I actually try to go around the diamond and I try to name like every player on, you know, the, the national league champion Mets in, in, uh, you know, 2015 or <laughs> every, every pitcher in the top 20 in ERA in baseball. So that's number one that I do. The other thing that I do, which recently helped me is I'll take a letter of the alphabet. Let's say, uh, the letter M and I'll try to name every single man that I, that I've ever met in my entire life whose first name begins with M and I kind of go through my life, Molly, and, and it'll be like, who did I know with the first name M as a child? Who did I know, you know, in high school in college, you know, in New York. And by the time I get to a certain, I'm just, I'm wiped out. So it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if you have similar things, but you know, when you, when you start to take your mind off of sleep to play a game like this, use a cognitive heuristic, a shortcut, a mnemonic, then all of a sudden it's the next day. So good. Yeah. And I, one, I appreciate you giving that window into your psychology too, because it's so helpful for all of us. Because when you were in it, we're like, is, you, you can easily have the experience of feeling alone and like you're the only weirdo that's uh, dealing with this. And right. the truth is, yeah, so many of us go through these different periods and it might be more amplified at certain stages of our lives and, you know, kind of ebb and flow. But it's very likely that you know, some of us at some point in our life are all going to experience that. And, um, it's that kind of response to it and how much we resist it. And believe me, I so 
uh, I could so relate to you know, looking to find those um, coping strategies, which are so great because it sounds like those have been super effective. Um, and it can be such a sense of ease when we start to find some of those things that can work for us. And um, one of the things that was a, a harsh reality for me to get was that I wanted to almost get like the the um, PowerPoint, like the the PowerPoint of how to figure out how to let go. <laughs> You know, and it was yeah. like, okay, just teach me how to let go so I can sleep. Um, exactly. And-, <laughs> and, and, and just real quick on the, on the note of, on the note of letting go, I actually yeah. saw a, a, ther- a therapist at one point about insomnia and she would sure. tell me, I would say, what should I think about when I'm trying to fall asleep? She would say, think about nothing. And that would be so frustrating for me because so I didn't know, yeah. like, like how, how do you think about nothing? But eventually I learned just yeah. thinking about nothing for me was just letting my mind drift. Like it, it's so hard to put into words, but just, just like, like, just let, just let, letting go. I mean, there's no other way to say yeah. it. Just letting go and letting it happen. That, that's what thinking about nothing was. Yeah, and I think that's a big element of this too. Is, um, and that's what so much of sleep as a skill is about. Is that we really take a lot of the focus off the night. So, um, so we really look largely at our days, and we kind of set the stage for um our for our bodies and our biology to be able to respond as they're really meant to do in um you know kind of automatically in a lot of regards and so by looking at the days and and by the way certainly in my case and in many of my clients cases um sleep can be a bit of a trojan horse so you go in with this idea of okay i'm going to impact my sleep but often what we find is that in order to make a difference there there are so many other areas of life that are out of kind of balance um that we have to take a look at those make take action in those um and from that place and helping to train our brain from uh, to begin to regard us as people that are going to um, to actually have a say and take action in those things that have been keeping us up at night. Because, um, you know, there was, I think that was part of what happened as a tipping point in my situation was that I trained my brain that, oh, I'm going to put it off, put it off, and only think about those stressful things in the middle of the night. And, mm. you know, so what actually ended up needing to happen was to deal and face those things that I didn't want to face um, during the daylight hours. And then, of course, shift over a number of things. And some of it can be, it's a really cool um paradigm shift because for so many of us, we, we might know that exercise is good for us, that eating differently, you know, eating healthy things at healthy times is a good idea. But unless we have this shift of, okay, I'm really going to get up under my sleep in 2020 or whatever, um, then it can suddenly make those things be less of a, I should instead of a okay, we're doing this thing because we are now yeah. committed to getting those new and different numbers for our sleep and not even just the numbers, but the results of feeling rejuvenated. Um, and so when we impact all of those things, then once we get to the nights and if we have a wake up, then okay, get comfy, you know, whatever we, you know, just the, the lack of resistance and knowing that it will be okay, that we will be able to over time progress on perfection, um, 
um, by putting these things in place, we can really make a uh, difference uh, in the trends of our sleep. And and then in that place, so now if I you know travel or something and um, some of my sleep schedule gets out of whack, when I in the beginning when I was recovering from that whole experience with my sleep, there would be moments of panic. Like, oh my God, it's going to happen again. I'm going to be yeah, you know, whatever. And there would really it would flare up like that momentarily. But over the time of learning what I've learned, it's really been presented a sense of solace for me of knowing that one, the body really craves um, normalcy and homeostasis with its health and as it relates to sleep, it's it's a real demand for the body. So it will do what is necessary to really help uh, restore that. And so that provided me with, you know, a sense of peace from that place. And then I got to see my own role in it. Cause at the time I thought it was, I was like mystified, like, how did this happen? And I didn't see all the things that I was actually doing to contribute to that. I love, okay. So I love this frame of, you know, why essentially I also had to have had the same experience of dreading going to sleep at night, like during the day, especially Sunday, you know, the Sunday scaries where I would count like, like it would be two o'clock and I'd count down like the amount of hours until, you know, going to bed. And I, I love this frame of, you know, it's almost like prevent with preventive medicine. Why go to the doctor when you're sick? Like you should you should be going, you know, worrying, think about what you can do when you're healthy to prevent getting sick. It's the same thing here. What can you be doing during the day to ensure that you don't have insomnia at night with exposure to sunlight, with, you know, uh, structuring your meals and, and the timing and that. So I think it's really important, you know, for listeners to, to you know, really take away for, from what Molly's saying that, um, you know, insomnia at it's not it's not about just what you could be doing between you know the hours of, of midnight and 2 a.m if you can't sleep it's it's holistic it's, it's you know what you can be doing throughout your entire day and your entire life to ensure that this doesn't become a, pro- a chronic issue absolutely yeah and and while that can be confronting because it's like oh no now i have all this responsibility to you know and, and a lot of work to do really to make a difference with that if we if we're looking one to restore some, you know, kind of basic baseline sleep, but then on the the next part of it, optimal sleep and extraordinary sleep, then it can be confronting because then it's, oh no, it's on my shoulders, but then it can be liberating. It's like, oh my God, it's on my shoulders. I can actually, um, really get up under this area, um, and make a difference here. And from that place, it can actually be really, really empowering. For sure. And, and and one last thing I wanted to ask you uh, has to do with sleep supplements, because earlier you mentioned melatonin and you said that melatonin is a hormone that's secreted or a neurotransmitter that's secreted uh, when, you know, your body can detect sunlight. A lot of people swear by melatonin. You know, uh, so many of my friends will take it before bed. I'll insist as a psych, you know, uh, someone who studied psych that there's a placebo effect. It doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. And they, they they swear by it. Um, so number one. Does melatonin work? And number two, if you know, if if it doesn't, uh, is there any other supplement that you found that might be uh, natural or organic that can help you sleep better? Yeah, great question. Um, so one, I do think it's just helpful for us to even from a framework remember that melatonin is a hormone, and so when we are taking, you know, I, I get that it's so available and every other, you know drugstore and what have you, just, uh, um, you know, even in a lot of our children's, you know, cold medicines and what have you, you'll see it very uh, prevalently now. And yet it's, I think, important to remember the fact that it is that hormone replacement. Um, and 
that there can be some concerns around if we are taking anything like that externally for over an extended period of time, what that could potentially do to our body's own ability to produce that um, more regularly and reliably. And and furthermore, yeah, I think that is an, a solid point to look at the possible placebo effects of something like that. Now, where there can be sometimes when melatonin can shine is things like jet lag, um, and, you know, also being mindful of the type of, uh, the way that you're administering it, often the liposomal response, uh, type of, um, a way of taking that melatonin can help support that, the actual absorption of that. But, um, I like to err more on the side of this kind of behavioral change that we can set up to produce our own sufficient supplies of melatonin. Um, and so, I, I think that there is so much more than we might realize we can do. And and I do get that this is challenging too. So um, one of the best things arguably that you could do for your sleep is post sunset, turn off all your lights, all the electricity and all the Wi-Fi. Um, but how many of us are really gonna go to that end of the spectrum? So, um, so within that domain, then looking at how we can make a difference um, you know, with our own production of melatonin. So that's one. And then the second thing, um, is now I'm counter to a lot of, uh, you know, kind of the holistic sleep, um, people out there where there are a lot of supplements that people will often push, which I, I get a little concerned about that because then there can be that blanket, um, okay, now you just got to take this particular stack and then you'll be off to sleep. Um, I know from my own personal experience and some of my experience of my clients of just the frustration and the wasted money of, okay, this is going to be the thing that's going to make the difference. And then wah, wah, it doesn't, <laughs> and the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, right. And then the concern also just about, um, you know, just blindly, uh, no matter the, the, um, person's specific physiology, um, what might be going on for them and then just applying some of these supplements. Cause actually it can be, it can create its own set of problems. If we just, um, put in layer in some of these, even just natural things, if we're not aware of what might be going on in our own biology. So testing can really help make a difference there. Um, and creating some partnerships around trusted, you know, kind of, um, you know, functional, uh, um, medicine doctors around a lot of understanding of our hormones and, um, some of uh, getting some of these panel work that can help us have some insight. Um, but I will say that out of any of the supplements, if there's one, um, often it's looking at magnesium that tends to be one thing that many, many of us are a bit deficient in. Um, and I know I alluded to potassium. So, you know, kind of looking also at like, um, some of those electrolytes and some of these minerals that can make a difference. Um, but often we start with the behavioral elements first, and then if there are problems from that place, um, begin to look at some other things, but something as basic as magnesium, kind of the, um, relaxation mineral can be a great place to start for many of us that are just not getting it from our food supply and soil production and the ways that we used to. 
Yeah, I mean, we so we talked about uh, we did an episode on micronutrients, how people don't eat enough leafy greens, spinach and kale loaded with yeah. magnesium. So definitely second your point there. The other thing to be mindful of though is chemical dependency because there are people who uh, I don't know if you, if you know these people, but they take a Xanax before bed. Let's say that, yeah. let's say they have generalized anxiety disorder, and every night they take a Xanax. At first, it's because they've had a long and stressful day. Then over time, it just becomes habitual. And what ends up happening is you know pe- people can't sleep without taking a and so it, you develop this addiction. So I would think, you know, as much as what you're saying, you know, mag- magnesium, some of these supplements like melatonin might be useful. You really yeah. don't want to put yourself in a situation where you can't fall asleep without taking a pill. That doesn't sound like it's healthy. Yeah. And that was the other concern for me with the traveling was that I didn't want to become um, beholden to certain things because then I used to have these certain um you know, uh, cause back in the day I would take the over the counter sleep aids and all that stuff. And then I would land and be traveling and there, those things wouldn't be available. And so that was a real problem because if I was relying on those things and even to your point, it's likely that a lot of it also had to do with this perceived sense of control that, Oh, I take this thing and then that helps me sleep. Um, you know, so really looking to what I call the desert Island approach is, um, part of the goal is as much as possible to be able to land on a desert island, nothing but the clothes on your back and be able to know yourself as a person that can get reliable, great sleep, um, you know, really yourself in a way that can be really empowering. The desert island approach. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. I'm, I'm going to borrow that because I like, <laughs> I like that. I like that mentality for everything. Like you can't rely on technology, on externalities. You need to just be able to be self-sufficient without, you know, needing any of these things and be able to, to sleep well on your own. Um, but in any event, Molly, you know, this has been an amazing conversation. I feel like this is one of the longer interviews I, I, I've had, but I do feel like we could talk about sleep and insomnia all day. Uh, so in case, in case you don't know, Molly actually hosts her own podcast. Um, you probably got that impression uh, from, from hearing Molly speak. But Molly has a podcast called Sleep is a Skill, available on Apple uh, Podcasts and Spotify. You can also check out her website on sleepisaskill.com, which we've spoken about on this episode. And where can people find you on Instagram, Twitter, and all of the socials? Oh, yeah, great. Um, So on Instagram, it's actually under um, Molly McLaughlin. But um, if you hashtag sleep is a skill, you can find me that way. And then um, but at sleepisaskill.com, it's really that main bucket for, um, you know, all the things really. So it can be that one stop shop for um, we are actually just adding on a downloadable PDF to show the optimized bedroom um, so that you can get some kind of. Uh, understanding of different ways that you can improve your bedroom environment. Um, sign up for our weekly newsletter. So every Monday, send out all the things I'm obsessing in in the world of sleep and um, listen to the podcast, take a sleep assessment um, and get personalized feedback on that. So lots of lots of things available there. And then all the uh, links to social too as well. Amazing. Well, well, listen, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you've taught me a lot. I mean, my only hope is that with everything I've learned, it doesn't keep me awake at night. <laughs> I can relate to that. I can totally relate to that. And, um, you know, if there's one thing to say about all that, it's uh, just starting with the the relationship and awareness to the light and the dark cycles. And for all of us, just really getting ourselves outside, getting that natural sun as much as possible during the day and actually cultivating a relationship and an okayness with darkness in the evening. And that can be a great place to start for all of us. 
Awesome. 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 Well, well, thank you again. This has been a lot of fun, Molly. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So that was my conversation with sleep expert Molly McLaughlin. Lots of very interesting takeaways. What was most shocking to me uh, among everything that Molly shared was her finding that people who get sub seven hours are still experiencing cognitive decline. Because I think, as I alluded to in the episode, you know, most people have friends who get five, six hours and thrive. And, you know, we we think there's some genetic component or, you know, this this person's just lucky. But really what Molly shared, which intrigued me, was the idea that, that these people may think that they're performing at optimum capacity, but actually there is still an element of uh, cognitive decline. The episode also made me more holistically reflect on my sleep schedule um, and trying to be more consistent every single day rather than just burning the midnight oil during the week and sleeping in on the weekends. That doesn't, that, it didn't seem to me like that was a recipe for success. Uh, and also being mindful of rebound sleep, right? You know, if I do have something in the middle of the week, making sure that I have quality sleep a couple days prior rather than just the immediate night before. So I learned a lot and going forward, hopefully I can be better at, you know, incorporating some of these things into my sleep habits. Because like she said, sleep is a skill and most people don't treat it that way. Most people think that you have no control over how you sleep. Most people think that it's either you get good sleep the night before or bad sleep the night before. Either you sleep eight hours or three hours. And, and you know, you have no control over the sleep. It's just a matter of how much sleep you get externally. But the reality is, you know, you can get better sleep. You can, you know, have higher quality sleep regardless of the interval of time that you're sleeping for by practicing some of the things that Molly spoke about. Much like with playing an instrument or a sport, something like like that, you know, sleep should be treated similarly. After all, you know, we, we spend a third of our lifetime asleep don't you want to, you know, learn how to sleep well, how to sleep more efficiently, how to have more restful sleep, how to wake up feeling rejuvenated and refreshed pretty much every night? Um, so definitely check out Molly's socials and her Sleep is a Skill website to learn more about that. So next week, I have a very special episode for you featuring Ryan Campbell, also known as Flyin' Ryan, who made history as the youngest solo pilot to fly around the world and later on suffered a devastating plane crash, after which he was diagnosed a complete paraplegic. Ryan shares his remarkable story of how he taught himself to walk against all odds and his lessons about chasing your dreams and overcoming adversity. So Ryan's story was incredibly inspiring, and I'm very excited to share that with you. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for clips from the pod and full episodes on YouTube uh, by searching Nervous Habits Podcast and write to the pod at nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com, nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com. What are your tips and coping mechanisms for when you cannot sleep and you're ravaged by insomnia? What supplements work for you? Are you a believer in melatonin? And are you someone that keeps the cell phone next to your bed or do you rely on an old-fashioned alarm clock? Let me know. Uh, tweet at me, DM me, um, or you send me an email, nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you're having trouble sleeping, just start naming people that you've met in your life beginning with the letter M. <laughs> Take care, make sure to get some sleep tonight, and stay nervous.